What's good, people? It's Jose Nino here again with another episode of El Nino Speaks. And today we will continue to spice things up with a very explosive guest. You may have listened to some of his work on The Right Stuff or even other channels like Mark Collette's show. And I have the great pleasure of bringing on Eric Stryker. How are things going with you, man? Oh, very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, your content is very controversial, but I believe it's thought-provoking as well. Before we dive into it, because most of my audience is not very acquainted with this kind of content, can you uh, give a brief bio of like your of yourself and like the type of work you've done over the years? Yeah. So my uh, my my real name is Joseph Jordan. Right now, I have a Substack called Litoria. L i t t o r ia.substack.com. We will be plugging that at the end of the show as well. Fantastic. Thank you. And um, and I also have a new show with uh, Warren Ballog called uh, War Strike. And uh, basically, I'm a, a researcher, a journalist, a writer, activist, you know, the whole thing. I've been doing this for many years. I've had several projects that have gotten some degree of, of interest, such as uh, the website National Justice, where I did a lot of journalism. I have my articles syndicated on uns.com, and I used to have a podcast on rightstuff.biz called Strike and Mike. That was very popular. And so, yeah, that's about it. So I'm curious, because you've definitely been in the so-called like identitarian you could say broadly dissent right, though I don't always like that term that much. Uh, space. How did you get into politics initially? Did you go through like a more like conventional, like libertarian, paleo conservative route, or did you just dive right into this type of identitarian stuff? If you want to know the exact origin point, it was probably at this point a long time ago. I'm talking like a decade and a half, maybe. Very similar to me. Yeah. I used to be a socialist. I've never been a libertarian. And, um, you know, I still consider myself a socialist uh, to a large degree. But now I have, you know, identitarian nationalist beliefs. Um, I believe that, you know, race is real. Uh, what you extrapolate from that is an opinion. But as a scientific category, race is real. Like, we have the, the science of it and so on. Now, that doesn't mean that you hate anyone. That doesn't mean that you uh, want to harm people or, or even necessarily discriminate against people. But it is a real thing, and it seems to transcend markets. It transcends class. It transcends all these different other, even patriotism and, and, and nationhood um, to a large degree. And this is, I find, um, an underlying theme in American society that people on the right in particular don't want to accept uh, to a large degree, although that's that's been changing in the last, say, 10 years, 5 to 10. Um, so, yeah, I've never been a libertarian or anything or, or, or even a conservative, really. I mean, I supported Trump in 2016, but that's about it. And so, yeah, uh, I got into this simply because I'm from New York City and 
I'll tell you something. If you grew up in New York City as a, as a white person or just in general, you will have a kind of up close perspective on these types of issues. You will see people and meet people from all over the world. And, you know, some of them are good. Some of them are bad, but you will know that people are different. And so this begins to make you ask questions about, you know, how a society uh, is structured and what a society will look like if the people change uh, to a large degree. So all these things kind of um, went into my uh, so-called red pilling. With that said, my main concern has been the identifying the the sort of origin of the changes that we see in Western countries and even increasingly in non-Western countries um, when it comes to questions of mass immigration, foreign policy, finance, you know, social policies like transgenderism and gay rights, the attack on the traditional family. I've always been very interested in finding out who and what is behind this, right? And so during this investigation, I uncovered what I believe is actually the theory of everything. And the theory is that members of the organized Jewish community, uh, through control of uh, various choke points in American society, are the origin of changes that we did not vote for, that most of us don't agree with, and yet are forced to live with. And I find that this is a very concerning situation because these types of elites do not, uh, according to their own words, do not respect our, our rights. They don't respect our dignity, our sovereignty, or uh, they, they have uh, immense hatred of white people, but also other types of people. And so having an elite like that controlling our lives uh, is something I think is very, very concerning and requires more discussion than you see. And the reason you don't see it is largely because it is viciously suppressed. It's as suppressed as criticizing Castro in Cuba or uh, you know Kim in North Korea. If you criticize America's actual rulers, you are treated almost the same. So this is one curious point because like the history of socialism has always interested me because we often forget like authors like Jack London, uh, who wrote like the call of the wild. He actually not only was a socialist, but he had pretty racialist beliefs and even some of Marx's immediate successors were still like nominally like pro European, pro-Western. What do you think has contributed to that shift in, let's say, like pro-Western sentiments among socialists to more anti-white sentiments among like your average socialists these days? Well, I, I think that there is a history here worth noting. The original socialists arguably were, you know, these Gentile Germans that combined German romanticism and nationalism with this spirit of anti-capitalism, much of it rooted in its 
and the perception that capitalism was and liberalism were eroding German national sovereignty and, you know, essentially instilling the German people with what they would call a Jewish spirit. Some of the most prominent German socialists that people, including on the left, don't want to acknowledge were individuals like Richard Wagner, the composer, who was a, a very adamant opponent of capitalism, but also very much a German nationalist. Then you have other figures like economist Friedrich List. You have uh, someone that I wrote extensively about recently on my Substack, Werner Sombart, who um, was also in this kind of vein of German socialism. And it wasn't really until Marx, Karl Marx, who was the descended from a, a, rab a family of rabbis that had converted to, to Protestantism, that socialism uh, went from being a blood and soil ideology, a nationalist ideology in Germany, to an internationalist ideology. So Karl Marx himself was the first kind of, for his time, was the first sort of uh, woke in that sense, the, the more so uh, amputating socialism from its nationalist origin. The idea of a nation being a family where you take care of each other as a collective, where you all sacrifice together like a family for, for the collective good, where the collective thrives and thus the individual thrives. This kind of, this foundation of early socialism was hijacked by Marx and turned into the monstrosity of communism that came later. Now, when it comes to the anti-white animosity you see on the left today, um, this largely is a bastard child of Jewish emigres from Germany. When Hitler came to power, he drove out the Frankfurt School, right? And these individuals like Horkheimer and, uh, you know, Marcuse, uh, in fact, Herbert Marcuse's wife was the, uh, the first person to have critical race theory classes where you investigate your white privilege. So it was when these people came to the United States and set up shop in New York City that you saw a sort of uh, hellish marriage between certain types of communist ideology with racial or anti-white animosity. In more recent memory, this new wave, you know, th this kind of um, wokeness or political correctness or whatever you want to call it, it's been happening for decades and building up, but it really hit a stride in 2014 when The Atlantic published an article by Ta-Nehisi Coates essentially promoting reparations based off of race. And the central theme of this argument is that, you know, universal programs that seek to give pe people health care or medical care based off of need rather than race are, you know, in the context of Obamacare at the time, should be scrapped for a new way of governance where you're given uh, certain advantages based entirely off of your race. 
And so this was in 2014, published in Jeffrey Goldberg's Atlantic, which essentially brought kind of a fringe Black Panther ideology into the American liberal mainstream. And so then that's when you started seeing more and more support from these sort of non-governmental organizations that are usually funded by Jewish uh, billionaire uh, asset managers, um, promoting things like Black Lives Matter, promoting things like you know, George Soros, funding uh, district attorneys that don't prosecute violent crime, but prosecute political crimes. Um, you see this all over the country. You have uh, developments like you know both parties essentially funded again uh, by largely Jewish uh, asset managers passed things like the First Step Act under Trump. This was uh, pioneered by Trump's people, by Jared Kushner in particular, who got Republicans to join with Democrats to essentially uh, release violent felons, many who have uh, reoffended. Like you know, in some cases. They would say, oh, this was a nonviolent drug offender. And then the nonviolent drug offender was actually like a, a person spending decades in prison because they were convicted as international cocaine narco traffickers. Like, you know, so it's almost you require a book to go through the full details on how this so-called uh, wokeness and anti-whiteness came to be. But I do want to stress that it's not exclusively on the left. The left is sort of the pioneer of it. But, you know, all the way back, this is another article I'm currently working on, uh, the, the rise of evangelical Christians. Uh, all the way back in 1957, you had uh, Christian Zionists like Billy Graham, who was actually himself discovered and financed by Jewish atheists at the ABC Broadcasting Company. He was one of the first televangelists in, in, in American history. And like with Ta-Nehisi Coates, he was discovered a guy with very little fame. No one really knew him. He was like an obscure pastor in the South. And you know, basically, Jewish television producers hired him to start a weekly show in the 1950s, a weekly televangelist show. Uh, in a time when there was only like four or five TV channels. So Christian Zionism went from being an obscure, like kind of uh, a weird sect within the American Protestant uh, world into a dominant religious tendency in the United States. And, you know, back to what I was saying, uh, in 1957, uh, these Jewish TV people, uh, allowed, uh, basically rented out Madison Square Garden and had Billy Graham host one of his crusades there. And one of the things Billy Graham did that was shocking to America's Protestants at the time was allow Martin Luther King to be the opening speaker who led the, the event in prayer. And Billy Graham played an important role in promoting Martin Luther King very early on, which is very interesting. And he did this under contract from the Jewish owner of ABC, Golden Sun. So, yeah, that, that's just, I know I threw a lot at you there, but that's just a general. No, that was actually the lead into one of my questions. 
In terms of um, organized Jewish political involvement in the 20th century, um, what type of role did they play in facilitating the civil rights revolution and the passage of the 1965 Immigration Act? Yes. Well, Martin Luther King's early, early supporters were all in the organized Jewish community. We know famously, uh, the, the name escapes me, but um, it, basically most of his speeches and so on were written by some Jewish guy. And he had this contact that opened up all these doors into getting positive media coverage where you saw like the New York Times and all the TV channels essentially uh, supporting Martin Luther King against these Southern governors, right? And then with the, with the uh, Immigration Act, you know, the Hard Seller Act, Emanuel Seller was a lifelong proponent of open borders. And so that's where you kind of saw it. But I would actually, I know this is like kind of standard or even boilerplate, like early stuff that a lot of people discover, you know, guys like Kevin McDonald that put that out there with great research and so on. But I think actually that, um, the rise of Jewish power in the United States came much, much before that. Basically, the Woodrow Wilson administration and uh, was chock full of Jews. And, you know, he was sort of the first American internationalist. The idea that it's the United States' role to promote uh, so-called democracy all over the world and impose liberal values throughout the planet. So. Uh, you go into the 1930s and 40s, you get FDR, and even here you see tons and tons of the um, of the Jewish element playing an extremely prominent role under FDR, and that sort of set all these other factors into motion, uh, hitting a, a pinnacle in the Brown versus Board decision, which was the force integration of schools, right? And what's interesting about this decision is that all of the research that the Supreme Court consulted with to rule in favor of racial integration against people's will was sponsored by the American Jewish Congress, the AJC. So essentially, the Supreme Court was um, ruling on behalf of this decision, not based on empirical science or even the well-being of either whites or blacks, but based off of the propaganda produced by the AJC. So yeah, you have all these different uh, dynamics going on before even the Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act was just the kind of cherry on top. Yeah, it's more like the crystallization. Now, based on your research, because you do some very extensive um, historical deep dives into some of these topics, were there traces of organized Jewish influence from the early days of the American Republic up until like the um, consolidation of the progressive era in the early 20th century? Well, if you want to go all the way back to the very early days of the American Republic, you know, you have to look at the history of Haim Solomon, who was this, uh, a financier. Yeah. Yes. He was the international banker that was able to fund the American Revolution. Um, there's actually a, an interesting anecdote where uh, <laughs> the 
in the Revolutionary War, there is a battle, the Battle of Yorktown, where George Washington defeated uh, the British general Cornwallis. There's a famous quote of Washington's when he was um, approached with the fact that the the uh, American army the did not have enough supplies to fight Cornwallis. He said the famous quote, send for Heim Solomon. <laughs> ah. And what, <laughs> what happened was um, Heim Solomon had, you know, the, the, the access to Robert Morris and essentially uh, the American revolution was funded by these Jewish bankers that had access in the Caribbean after the victory of uh, the revolutionary forces, they were able to escape a lot of economic attacks from Great Britain because these uh, Jewish merchants were able to trade throughout the Caribbean, even into Latin America. They were able to access uh, different types of exchanges and able to uh, get resources for the new republic. And the ultimate outcome of that is that the United States, in gratitude to these Jewish bankers, became the first sovereign nation in the world to emancipate the Jews in 1789. So America did this before even France, before even Britain. It was the United States that was the first country in the world to give Jews the full citizenship. So why would somebody like Solomon go out of their way to back the U.S. because in this rebellion? Because... From my reading of history, next to like the Netherlands, um, historically, uh, the British government has been one of like the most like philo-Semitic regimes in the age of exploration in that epoch. Uh, what what do you think prompted Solomon to back the the founding generation? I think that um, I I would have to do more research to get you specifics on that. But if I had to take a guess, it would be primarily that uh, despite the British government being at that point in the late 18th century, uh, highly compromised by Jewish finance from the, the city of London, Jews still could not at the time serve in parliament. There were still tons and tons of old uh, measures in place that uh, sort of contain Jewish ability to participate in British politics, uh, despite the fact that they were becoming amongst the wealthiest in the world, not just in Britain, uh, through the British Empire. And so I think that a lot of um, uh, Jewish financial interests in the New World benefited from you know certain types of industries or, or trades, uh, including slavery. They benefited from a greater de degree of independence in the new world. And so that's why they, they may be funded some of these um, sort of liberal revolutions that were free of the kind of uh, whims of, you know, clerics and aristocrats and nobles and kings that existed in the new world. Uh, here was an opportunity to create uh, a new country free of all of these sort of institutional barriers to Jewish power. So that, that would be my guess in that sense. I see. Interesting. 
Yes. Now, I want to go to the Zionism question because I think it's relevant in light of the recent events in Gaza. And as far as the U.S., basing this off of the work you've done in investigating organized Jewry and Zionism in the United States, when would you uh, say uh, were like the initial stages of the development of like a strong like pro-Israel lobby? Oh, definitely. And this is this again coincides with research I'm currently doing for a piece on the origins of evangelical Zionism. Definitely the Christian Zionist movement that came to the forefront in the 1950s in the age of the television, when for the first time you started having, again, figures like Billy Graham broadcast uh, in the in the homes of millions and millions of people, converting many people to this new ideology, which combined sort of Whig party anti-communism with anti-racism and with Zionism, like philo-Semitism. And so by the 1967 Arab-Israeli war, figures like Billy Graham were more popular than ever, you know, from 1965 to 1975, uh, evangelicals went from a minor uh, kind of fringe uh, sect within the American Protestant uh, realm into the most dominant one. And uh, the Israelis actually actively helped Billy Graham in this endeavor where, uh, you know, basically the atheist Jews that run the Israeli government literally gave Billy Graham a free private jet so he could fly around the country meeting people and and giving his sermons and stuff. <laughs> he flew around the world, actually, on this jet. And so, you know, you have this, uh, the rise of, of Christian Zionism um, essentially as a sort of uh, way of getting the American people not to fight back when, you know, the Nixon administration launched the massive airlift to support the Israeli forces that led to the gas crisis, the oil crisis in the United States, where uh, in the 1970s, people couldn't get gas at the gas station. And in most instances, uh, a development like this would have created a political uh, opposition to the government to and and the demand that it change its foreign policies, but because of the rise of Christian Zionism, they were able to explain it to people in these terms, and essentially the um, the American people sort of were were sat back and just took the economic crisis that was caused by the support for Israel. You know, people don't know this, but prior to the 1970s in particular, prior to the Arab-Israeli War in 1967, the American Christians, including Protestants, were actually very skeptical of Israel. Most American Christians were actually uh, more sympathetic to Palestinian Christians than they were to Israel prior to the rise of figures like Billy Graham. Jerry Falwell, uh, Chuck Hagee, I think his name is, or Hagee. Isn't that true as well for the conservative movement? Was it like freaking James Burnham also like more sympathetic to the Palestinians? Well, the 
American State Department um, for a while was had a, a WASP element that was maybe not entirely sympathetic to the Palestinians, but far more neutral when dealing with Israel than the State Department that arose in the 70s and especially the 80s. It was really when uh, the Soviet Union decided to go all in on Arab nationalism against Israel uh, in the late 60s that um, in, in the mid to late 60s that you saw this massive this massive shakeup of political allegiances where you saw communist Jews essentially uh, quit communism and become conservatives, <laughs> you know, of, of the famous Trotskyite to neocon pipeline came when the Soviet Union went all in on Arab nationalism and anti-Zionism, which then also compelled certain cold warriors that were not Jewish to also become more pro-Israel, uh, including Richard Nixon. So, you know, you have a lot of these different uh, dynamics playing out, but much of it with, you know, the Jewish financial element, Jewish political influence as the string pullers. So, yeah, pretty much. Okay, now on the Soviet Union point, that's something that's always fascinated me because um, it's always been talked about that, like, the Bolshevik Revolution was, like, disproportionately comprised of, like, a Jewish element. But what prompted the Soviet Union to, because it actually did back the creation of Israel, what prompted the Soviet Union to take a more um, Arab nationalist line against Israel? I think essentially what was going on was that there was a big sort of internal shakeup uh, within the communist bloc, uh, frankly, against Jews and Zionists. And, and one of the turning points was the Prague trials in 1952, where several Jews were basically executed. Communist party members were executed by Soviet authorities because many Jews that worked for the Soviet Union that functioned within the Soviet Union were also Zionists. And so you had instances like the Jewish anti-fascist committee in, in the in, in, uh, following World War II that were creating problems inside of the Soviet Union on behalf of Israel, right? So by the 1960s, it became clear to Soviet authorities that the Jewish population was actually going to be largely pro-U.S. in the Cold War. And for that reason, they kind of cut bait to some degree. Now, that doesn't mean all Jewish people were... Uh, expelled from the Soviet Union or anything. Uh, far from it. You know, Jewish individuals still had some influence inside of the Kremlin, but you did see tendencies emerge throughout the Eastern European Communist bloc where you saw nationalistic elements begin to overpower the original Jewish elements that were put into power uh, in the 19. 40s and 50s over these new conquered lands. One interesting anecdote to support this was in Poland, 
where you had members of the ONR Falanga, which was an openly fascist, openly anti-communist, and openly anti-Jewish group, individuals like Boleslaw Pizaki joined the Polish Communist Party and became high-ranking officials. And these people actually launched purges of, of Jews in the name of anti-Zionism, the Polish government, and basically ran them out of the country, which uh, simply hardened the polarization to some degree. So, yeah. Mm, fascinating stuff. Yeah, let's fast forward a bit to more contemporary subjects. One of the biggest themes I've um, been writing about ad nauseum for, I'd say, the past five years has been the total like breakdown of the unipolar, so-called unipolar order that emerged with the dissolution of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, which saw like, the U.S. basically throw its weight around the globe and through direct military means, oftentimes as well through indirect measures such as um, those so-called color revolutions and then the host of sanctions it slaps on any regime that does not bow down to like like the degeneracy that comes out of DC and like London. But things have changed obviously with the emergence of not only like Russia and China as respective revisionist powers in their traditional geopolitical domains, but also the rise of a lot of regional powers like Turkey, Iran, and other assorted actors. Do you see this multipolar world as a potential threat to the uh, like the Zionist factions and all other factions of transnational uh, Jewry? Yes, definitely. And they see it as a threat as well. Primarily, not because these countries are particularly ideologically anti-Zionist or anti-Jewish, but because they are pragmatic and are just, they want to do what is good for their economies. Iran, China, and Russia have almost nothing in common culturally, politically, or historically. Yet, what brings them together is an economic and pragmatic need to um, essentially revolving around oil and natural gas. So in the case of China, like China does not understand why it's not allowed to buy, you know, inexpensive Iranian oil or inexpensive Russian gas. Like they don't, they just don't understand why their industry should suffer because you know, essentially a small group of largely Jewish people have a, an ideological or, 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 or political or geopolitical opposition to Iran. And so what you see is that uh, there's an effort to bring Iran into the fold. This is causing a, a great degree of distress in Washington um, because Iran, of course, is an anti-Zionist power. And so the Chinese and the Russians are just like, well, it's in our interest to support these guys. They, they have similar enemies. They have a, a large middle class, actually. People don't know this about Iran. It's got 80 million people. And, uh, you know, it's a large market. They produce oil. It's one of the largest oil producers in the world. In the case of, um, 
Other cases like North Korea, they have tons and tons of rare earth minerals. Ditto for the Taliban's Afghanistan. So when you're looking at it from the the perspective of pure national self-interest, pure economic self-interest, it makes more business sense to be friends with Iran, to be friends with the Taliban's Afghanistan, and to be friends with even North Korea than it does to sanction them based off of some uh, nebulous, you know, Zionist interest. And this is actually what is causing uh, a lot of the global tensions between the United States and its G7 uh, client states versus Russia, China, and Iran. This is an unnatural confrontation. It doesn't need to happen. It has very simple political solutions, which is, hey, let's just trade. Let's just be friends. Let's have peace. But the people in Washington just, they can't have it. Because as soon as there are other interests at the table, and it's a multipolar order, then you have to negotiate. And the problem is the the Jewish uh, interests, the Jewish geopolitical and globalist interests often is, you know, irrational from the perspective of a nation, of a nation's well-being. It's irrational even from the American nation's well-being. And so other people don't want to go along with this bullshit, and it's causing America to be on the precipice of a three-front war. It's crazy. Have you seen any evidence of a potential faction of, like, uh, transnational Jewry just saying, like, to hell with the U.S., we're going to, like, just pivot to Eurasia to see if we can just corrupt these countries instead in the long term? Because I get the sense that I was listening to one of these guys, this one uh, Jewish um, geopolitical uh, strategist guy, um, I think like David Goldman's his name, like like goes by like the alias Spangler. He's actually kind of sympathetic to like um, the cause of just uh, reaching a negotiated settlement in Ukraine and all of that. And he was against like the West's efforts to arm Ukraine to the hilt. But I think he was like uh, featured in an interview where he was like kind of saying that like the U.S. can no longer be considered like a reliable sugar daddy essentially for like Israel and that like because the guy's a Zionist ultimately and he uses saying like um Israel may have to just start like recalibrating a lot of its like foreign policy and its overall like dealings of countries abroad. I mean you might find like the occasional low level Jewish commentator promoting something like that, but uh the actual leaders of the organized Jewish community around the world simply don't agree. You know, George Soros famously wrote an article supporting Trump's trade war with China, supporting greater American military presence in the South China Sea. And basically, his logic is, I tried to buy up the Chinese stock market. I tried to screw around with their currency. And then the Communist Party of China stopped me from doing this. So he was trying to, he was trying to essentially conquer their markets and the Chinese government, uh, basically chopped his arm off and, and, and kicked him out of the country, basically. Um, and he's very mad about that. Um, you have other figures like, um, I mean, I, I would just point, I would just challenge someone to find me a single Jewish organization in the world that supports 
Russia over the Ukraine in that conflict. I mean, the even the rabbi of Moscow had to leave the country because of the fact that he would not support the Russian state in this conflict. So even inside of Russia, Jewish groups are pro-Ukrainian to a large extent. And so I, I don't... Um, I don't really see, even if they're forced to make pragmatic trade-offs, right? Like the United States can't possibly continue funding the Ukraine war to the extent that it has if it's forced to directly intervene in the Middle East. Like it's not possible to do that and also uh, militarily defend Taiwan from China. Like you can't physically do that. There's not enough resources for that. And you're starting to see uh, in America, you know, the Republican Party, which is essentially uh, uh, just an elaborate Israel lobby at this point, they're kind of getting cold feet on continuing to fund Ukraine because they realize that our production capacity to prosecute a full war against Iran and also continuing throwing money into the black hole, which is the Ukrainian military, uh, throwing money and weapons into there, almost unilaterally. I mean, Europe has largely uh, stopped sending weapons to Ukraine because it doesn't have any anymore. Like, I think someone was saying the German military has two weeks worth of ammunition left or two days worth or something ridiculous like that. So... The Ukraine war is is very painful for the G7 nations to continue arming and funding and prosecuting while at the same time perhaps uh, having to stave off or even uh, fully intervene in a full-on war against Iran, which will probably be uh, an absolute catastrophe if it happens for everyone involved, but including the United States. So, you, you know, if, if you're a member of the Jewish community, you want to support Ukraine. We all know that the entire elite of Ukraine is Jewish from the top advisors to the president. And so, you know, the, both just just wrap your mind around this. Both the president of Ukraine and the prime minister are, are Jewish. And Jews are maybe less than one percent of the population. So they want to prop up the Ukrainian government. In, in perpetuity, particularly if it's if it's harming uh, Russian interests, uh, even if the Ukrainians get nothing out of it, it's, it's just purely just to, to harm Russians. They have an interest in supporting that, but at the same time, you have this development in the Middle East, and at the, at the end of the day, Israel is the ultimate. It's the mothership, and so all hands on deck for Israel is their mindset. Uh, I like to go back on like the um, the Soros point because you'll hear some like goofy nationalists say like oh Israel is like anti globalist because like Soros is not liked in Israel and all of that. I tend to take a more nuanced point on that that I think like Soros is like opposition to Israel is mostly because of the fact that he's like a more of like a Theodore Herzl, like labor type of Zionist who probably now no longer identifies with like the freak show, um, hard right wing character of um, 
Israeli politics now with like the likes of like Itamar Ben Gavir and all these people in control of Israel. What do you think motivates like Soros' like opposition though to like um, the current like Israeli like political order? First of all, I question the extent of it. Like, even if tomorrow Soros put all of his money into regime change against Netanyahu, the Israelis deal with that easily. They just outlaw the Open Society Foundation in their country. The problem is Israel can do that. They can, they can just ban all NGOs that are liberal. Uh, even pro-Zionist non-government or organizations that simply express some concern about how it looks bad to commit an open genocide against Palestinians in plain view. Even those are outlawed, harassed, uh, put in jail, and so on. Uh, you know, if a country like Hungary did this, the United States and the European Union would sanction them. But when Israel does it, no one says anything. When international criminal courts uh, summon Israel for, you know, just plain atrocities and, and open genocide, um, if, you, if you read the recent filings at The Hague, you know, they, they, they go through like a family of 144 Palestinians all killed in the last two months where they were saying, like, we've never even seen something like this. You know, they have quotes from Israeli leaders, like the famous uh, Netanyahu Amalek quote, uh, openly talking about how they plan to racially exterminate, ethnically cleanse the Palestinians and so on. And none of this is going to go anywhere because the U.S. is going to just veto any attempt at holding Israel accountable under its own liberal rules. So George Soros, even if he is anti-Zionist, which there's no real evidence that he is, I don't see him funding students for justice in Palestine in the U.S., right? I mean, can someone find, you know, a, a Soros link to that? I don't see any, you know, into, into the authentic, like true anti-Zionist groups. So to the extent that he's just not on board entirely with the sort of more fanatically religious Zionists versus the secular Zionists. I mean, that, that's just an irrelevant debate. It's like, a, you know, a, a debate between the, the Strasser brothers and Hitler, right? It's like, okay, they, they might have some disagreements on who should be in power, how the revolution should happen and so on. But at the end of the day, they're, they're still both Nazis. They still both, they're both national socialists. Yeah, it's cosmetic. Yeah, it, it looks like a good cop, bad cop thing. If anything, right? Yes, and Jews are very concerned with being uh, seen as good cops and bad cops because what happens is you'll see that a lot of pro-Palestine groups are led by Jews, and at the same time, ineffectual. The only real left-wing cultural movement that is completely ineffectual, pro-Palestine one. Like, explain to me why the U.S. State Department is all woke on race. All they have like transgenders as transgender awareness month, transgender awareness day. And yet the left-wing critique of American foreign policy and imperialism or the left-wing critique of Zionism to the point where even younger members, low-level staffers in the U.S. State Department are protesting, writing open letters against Biden. And yet they continue to be ignored. The U.S. government is completely bulletproof, impervious to so-called woke left critiques of Israel. So someone needs to explain to me why the left is so dominant 
in American institutions on on issues like you know disenfranchising white people or gay stuff. Uh, but when it comes to Palestine, they have zero impact, zero influence whatsoever on the State Department. Yeah, very much. Those are good questions to be asking. Now, with respect to the Hamas-Israel like conflict, do you think that this recent conflagration was just like inevitable? Like it was just going to happen irrespective of who was in power in the White House and even in Israel? Because it seems to me that conflict is very much baked into the cake there. Yeah. I mean, the, the main issue going on is that the Israelis are, are not interested in a two-state solution. And so if your people are essentially trapped in an open-air open prison, in a get, they're ghetto, in ghettos. Gaza is a ghetto in the old sense. So people there, like the young people there, you have to imagine, like, what? why would a young person join Hamas uh, fly into Israel knowing that they have a hundred percent chance of dying. And the reason for that is that they they have no hope. They're essentially prison prisoners. They're, they're, they're non-citizens. They don't have any rights. They're not allowed to have their own country. And so this is just an inevitable, uh, outcome of that. And Bibi Netanyahu is, um, an important figure in this. I mean, he has, continuously said over the years that he will never allow a two-state solution. Okay. He's openly said this, but his, uh, his predecessors were no better. Ariel Sharon, people like, you know, going back even uh, into the eighties and nineties, when, when you saw the Israelis fighting against the Oslo Accords, uh, they're just not interested in a diplomatic solution. They want to take and annex all of these lands. They want East Jerusalem. They want the Golan Heights. They want Gaza and they want the West Bank and they want the people there to be Jewish. This is just elaborate. Uh, the, uh, all this other stuff is just an elaborate way to torture the Palestinians until they leave. That's what their ultimate goal is. They want the Palestinians to leave. They want to send them to Europe. Okay. They want to send them to other Middle Eastern countries. They don't want them in these occupied lands, despite the fact that they're Palestinian lands. So there's no diplomatic solution when one side feels that way. You have no choice but to fight. And this is the ultimate story of the Palestinian struggle. Uh, no doubt, for sure. So I've been kind of like thinking about this lately because we're not too far away in our lifetime from like, um, the arrival of Israel's centennial. And if you look at the macro trends, let's not even forget, like, let's put aside the current Hamas like conflict, but you have like this really weird reactionary sect um, emerging in Israel that's made up of a lot of like ultra Orthodox Jews that are like on the public dole. And it also like, and there's like new right wing coalition, it's just like a freak show of like Middle Eastern, like Sephardic Jews, and then like some, all these like ultra-Orthodox parties. And they're just getting like much more belligerent. And also when you have like this like financial strain that's going to be inevitably brought about uh, by the ultra-Orthodox, to me, you're, it seems like Israel is like on like on, on like a accelerationist course 
to not only like massive geopolitical blowback, but potentially going like financially insolvent, like domestically. So I almost think that if it continues this path, like picking fights with not only like the Palestinians, but also potentially opening a second front with Lebanon and then like clashing with Iran, that we may not see Israel make its centennial. Do you think that the viability of the Israeli state um, is now in question now with like the whole Hamas attack? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is tied back up with the imperial decline of the United States. Like that yeah, guy that you were mentioning, that, yeah, the, the Jewish guy uh, that you were talking about that was saying like, oh, maybe Israel should stop being dependent on America and open up some ties to Russia and China. Like, I mean, do you think Russia and China are going to give Israel billions of dollars every year for nothing in return other than the hatred of the entire Muslim world, just as so some Jews can sit around reading the Talmud? Like, that's <laughs> that's not something that is even in, in, in the menu of conceivable things for any country outside of the United States and parts of Western Europe. Um, it's just inconceivable. No one else is going to go along with that. And so the fortunes of Israel are tied up with the ability of Washington to continue projecting unilateral power in the Middle East. And this is starting to come into question. It's not really a question of desire or willpower, like the, the State Department absolutely does want to do it. But the problem is you have all of these new regional actors I mean, whoever thought that the Houthis could cause like so many, so many problems for the U.S. and the U.K., the Houthis are, are trying to prevent the ships from going into Israeli ports, right? And so here you have the United States and the United Kingdom going and getting involved in this conflagration in the Middle East where a war, a regional war could break out any second and the United States and Britain will be at the center of it. What country is going to do that other than America? I mean, do you think the Russians are going to do it? The Chinese? Hell no. They don't. They're just not interested. And so the viability of uh, even even if um, present trends continue is still entirely reliant on whether the U.S. can continue to be financial, military, technologically supreme over these uh, opposing, or as you call them, revisionist powers. It all depends on the stability of the post-World War II liberal order. If that phrase, I mean, even in a way that doesn't really hurt America that much, um, Israel will ultimately be the loser uh, because all of the incentives, even non-ideological, even if you don't care about the fact that Israel is committing genocide or uh, murdering a, a people uh, uh, basically just for their race, which is what they're doing for the to the Palestinians. Like even if you don't agree with all, like you don't care about that, the financial, political, and so on incentives are all in the Arab world. Like they're all like if America ran as a America first power, the first thing we would do is settle our dispute with Iran and buy their gas to lower gas prices. But because of the Zionist control of our government, that's never going to happen, at least not until there's a massive shift 
or the, the fact that, you know, the, the U.S. is simply unable to project power in that region further. So there's just no real, in my opinion, in the long term, the very long term, possibly even the medium term, Israel simply doesn't have a future. It's essentially the equivalent of Las Vegas. Like if, if uh, you know, infrastructure breaks down in America and, you know, you're stuck in Las Vegas, well, you're not going to have water coming in. Like it requires this elaborate support system just to have Las Vegas running out in the middle of the desert, right? Electricity, water, internet, and so on. Uh, you need all this infrastructure just to have the city function. Well, the same is true for Israel. It's a it's a, a luxury that requires tons of American and to lesser degree British and Western European resources just to exist. And the fact that so many Jews now are refusing to enter the military, refusing to get jobs, I mean, they're essentially living off of welfare at the expense of foreign taxpayers and trade deficits. A country like that cannot stand on its own two feet. Oh, no question about that, man. Yeah, I, I, I think like very much like you cannot really extricate like Israel's rise to prominence with like the U.S.'s geopolitical supremacy as well. Like this whole conservatism Inc. narrative that Israel is like some like bootstrap state is risible to say to, to say the least that it's laughable. Like just like so some final questions here though before we put a close to this yeah we got like the 2024 elections full steam ahead do you think that if donald trump is um is able to like unseat biden or whoever is nominated in the republican party because there's so much crazy stuff that could possibly happen do you think that if a republican wins the presidency that there is increased likelihood of a um of the u.s going to war in the middle east Yes, yes. And I think that the prospect, you know, trying to predict the outcome of the election a year before is not, it's simply not, a, not a, a wise or prudent thing because men, like you said, a million things could change. We might not even have Biden and Trump running <laughs> for all we know. But even with that said, might not even have an election. <laughs> we might not. Yeah, who knows? Um, I think a lot of, a lot of Biden's personal political fortunes will depend on how he deals with these challenges and dilemmas, particularly in the Middle East. The Biden administration thinks it can fight all these different wars. It can fight China, it can fight Russia, and it can also fight in the Middle East. We saw them uh, bombing Yemen recently. And, um, you know, and also the, the bombing of Yemen just totally stupid. The Houthis were even saying like, we're not interested in, you know, attacking American cargo ships. They were saying like, we're only interested in attacking Israeli ships because we want humanitarian aid to get into Gaza. If we don't get humanitarian aid into Gaza, we're going to do our own blockade of Israel. And here comes the United States saying, oh, the Red Sea commerce, the Red Sea commerce. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, tons of countries are getting their ships through like China without any problems, right, uh, from China to Europe. 
it's only uh, the uh, U.S. and the U.K. seem to want to put their neck on the line for Isra- the Israeli economy, which is insane. Um, but nevertheless, I think Biden actually, as bad as he is, as awful and as much as I hate Biden, believe it or not, I think a Republican, including Trump, would be far worse in this conflict. We'd probably be in a full-on war with Iran at this point. And I think that the organized Jewish community, including the top donors to Biden, could very well undermine his presidential campaign in favor of a Republican if it looks like Biden is not up to the task of destroying Iran, of dest- of helping destroy Hezbollah, of you know neutralizing the Houthis, but primarily really uh, fighting Iran directly. That's what they want. They don't, uh, if you read Jewish foreign policy analysts, most of them want the United States to fight a full-on war with Iran right now. And they're saying that Biden is dithering and that he's um, not doing enough. I mean, it's total bullshit because uh, Biden actually, this was in the New York Times, he picked the, uh, the, the most extreme option for that he was presented with for dealing with the Houthis, which was to, to, to significantly bond them, including their ports. So it's not like he's not doing something, but he does seem to be aware of the electoral politics of bringing America into war in an election year. Um, with that said, if if Trump were to come to power, my prediction would be that he would actually basically ditch Ukraine, possibly come to some kind of accord with Taiwan and China, and then just throw everything at Iran into a full-on war. That would be my prediction if a if Trump or any Republican gets into power. Like the the idea, I know that a lot of right-wing people out there, a lot of conservatives have this view that Trump is an anti-war candidate, but he's just lying. Uh, if you look at what Trump did in office, he actually there's more troops in the Middle East when Trump left than when he got in. Trump continued Obama's war in Yemen supporting the Saudis under Trump the Ukrainians got the largest arms transfers even more than in the latter Obama years. I'm sorry. Actually, Obama did not transfer arms to the Ukrainians. It was Trump. And Joe Biden was actually an advocate of transferring arms, and he was overruled by Obama on that. So Trump actually was the one that accelerated the conflict that led to the war in 2022 so the, the guy is a warmonger. I mean, we saw him doing all types of shenanigans in, in Latin America, like stuff that's not our business. Like, okay, Venezuela has a government that, you know, you don't agree, people don't agree with. Okay, why don't we just buy their oil? Let's just trade with them. Who cares what government they have? But Trump appointed these, these Zionist neocons from, from the Reagan administration to essentially prosecute these like really badly done attempts at coups and and civil wars. They blew up the Venezuelan power grid and tried to, under the guise of humanitarian aid, tried to arm the people rioting and stuff. It didn't go anywhere, but it just goes to show what Trump's intents were. When he goes out there and, and he says, oh, Iraq was a mistake and we should get out of the Middle East. Well, his administration didn't get us out of Afghanistan. It was the Biden one for better or for worse, that actually went through with that. So 
Trump is objectively a warmonger. And when it comes to Israel, he will absolutely, absolutely be willing to uh, involve us in a full, bloody, internationally devastated, catastrophic war with Iran if it looks like Israel has even a minor existential threat, or even if they just want to get it over with. They just want like, okay, this is, we're, we're already at war. Let's drag the U.S. into this, which is what Bibi Netanyahu openly says. He says he wants to drag the U.S. into a wider regional conflict. So who's going to be most willing to agree with that? Well, it's going to be Trump and Republicans who are the only elite faction that Republicans have on their side is the Zionist lobby. The Democrats are controlled by the Zionist lobby too, but the Republicans, this is like their only, the only thing they have that keeps them even as anything more than glorified uh, Washington generals. The only influence, the only money, the money, the bank that, that, that keeps the lights on at the GOP is the Adelson casino fortune. It's the, the money from all these different uh, dual citizens. Okay. Yeah, I actually uh, was talking about this with um, my co-host, um, Henry Zamoda, of like our America Second, newly launched America Second podcast that literally, uh, because this is like an accelerationist trend too, that like the GOP just shitting on people going to college and stuff, they're they're turning into like a downwardly mobile party that's going to be like susceptible, more susceptible to Zionist like influence um, and Zionist money because there's, there's not going to be any like really elite formation in that party anytime soon. Well, I would point uh, to an article I wrote the other day about uh, Javier Millet in Argentina. Oh, I read that. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Uh, he's sort of pioneering the immediate future electoral strategy of the GOP. Uh, traditionally in Argentina, conservative candidates run on a sort of white populist anti-immigration uh, platform like you see this with Mauricio Macri or Macri uh, who ran on stopping immigration from Bolivia and Peru into Argentina. This is what every conservative in Argentina in Argentina has done for 40 years. They promise to stop immigration. They never do it. And so his voting base was old and white while, you know, Javier Millet did not talk about immigration at all, did not talk about these types of issues. He ran on essentially things like, you know, his candidates were, the candidates on his list were, were flat earthers and, you know, religious zealots and, you know, anarcho-capitalist types, like meme guys, like, you know, internet right. Not not like alt-right, but like that kind of internet right that's like into like QAnon and stuff. Javier Millet brought like the um, the sort of uh, young kind of non-white immigrant population of Argentina, like second generation immigrants from Peru and Bolivia. He won them over with a sort of Andrew Tate style, um, you know, kind of incel hustler type of, uh, you know, uh, get rich quick thing like uh, crypto bros and stuff like he. He brought all these different people together and cobbled together a new electorate that allowed him to take power. But as you see from my article, 
he's essentially just um, was essentially discovered and put into power by a small group of Jewish billionaires in Argentina who their main priority in the country is to essentially privatize various state industries, especially natural resources, so that they can buy them up for cheap and monopolize the, the country's economy. And so, you know, you already see tons of cronyism in Millet's government, where these, these billionaires that, that funded his campaign are now like running the government with him, you know, <laughs> and like, uh, uh, and I think that that's going to be, that's the kind of politics that the Republican Party will be promoting, if not this election in 2028. When, you know, they're, they're going to if, if Trump loses in 2024, the Republican autopsy will say, well, he stressed immigration too much. He offended certain minority groups. He uh, dog whistled. He made too many racial dog whistles, which offended certain minority groups. So let's keep the schizophrenics. Let's keep the retards. Let's keep the QAnons and let's keep the flat earthers while further expelling any sort of, you know, like Charlie Kirk said, talking about Martin Luther King being bad or, uh, you know, replace that with more of a religious uh, kind of uh, politics, which is what Millet did and his and his campaign did. They they replaced the, the racial dog whistles with more of like a kind of Catholic, you know, uh, we're, we're against uh, abortion type of politics. And I, I see that as the future of the GOP. And I see more, just like in, in Argentina, more naked and direct Jewish involvement and cronyism as they you know, look around at the elite that they themselves help spawn through the discrimination against young, uh, against young white people, normal white people in universities. They create a new elite that is so diverse and and it's, it's too female and it's too, you know, not not up to the task. And so they're just going to be like, well, if there's no competent people to, to run this government, then we'll just do it ourselves. And you'll see like just people from Goldman Sachs, like will take up every cabinet position in that scenario. Man, that's like a whole other rabbit hole in itself, and I think that would merit another great discussion because I found this topic already to uh, this episode to be great. So I would absolutely love to have you back on, um, sure, uh, Joe, just to like talk more about this. Now, before we sign off, let my audience know where they can follow your work. Yeah, you can find it on Substack. It's uh, Latoria.substack.com. You know, we have other content. And if you get on the subscriber list, I'll send it to you. And that's basically it. Yeah. You can find it on UNS too, I think. And also promote your uh, the uh, War Strike because I saw the first episode. Oh, yeah, really yeah, wonderful. yeah. War Strike. You can find that on odyssey.com. Awesome. It's our podcast. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Striker. I really uh, enjoyed this talk. And I believe my audience will be absolutely captivated by it. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate your time. And uh, thanks for having me on. And also to my audience, thank you so much for your precious attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.